One of the great blessings that uh, God has brought to us at First Alliance Church uh, here in 2022 is uh, to bring T.J. Morrison, our new pastor of worship and discipleship, to us. Um, most of you have gotten to meet T.J. by now, but he's only been here for two or three weeks, and I know what happens in the summer. Uh, some of you, it's probably your first time uh, meeting him, and so you're wondering who this dude is that's all of a sudden going to stand on the pulpit <laughs> and preach to you. Um, but T.J. has has been involved in many different types of ministry over the last uh, four or five years, and he's done an awful lot of preaching, probably almost as much as I've done. Um, and so he is here today to bring God's word to us. So TJ, welcome. And again, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pastor Paul. I, uh, it, is a, it is truly a pleasure to, to be here for the first of what I hope is many times that I get to stand before you and open God's word together uh, so that we may be affected and molded and shaped by its power more into the image of Jesus. Um, and so I just would ask, would you pray with me right now specifically over the preaching of God's word this morning? Father, we love you and we thank you. God, as John just prayed, we are so unworthy of being called your children. Because our hearts just seek to serve ourselves. But God, we pray this morning that through the power of your word, that you would mold and shape us more into the image of Jesus. That we would seek not ourselves, but we would seek you and your glory. Amen. So God, be made much of this morning. Fill our hearts with the truths of the gospel. Remind us of who we are as your children and the great hope that we have. God, tune our hearts together to worship you through the preaching of your word. Hide me behind the cross this morning that I would not come with elegant words or crafty wisdom, but that the power of the gospel would be proclaimed from this pulpit to your people. Amen. Lord, we give this time to you and it is only by the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So some of you know uh, from kind of my backstory of what I shared when I came, I grew up as a Baptist, so please don't hold that against me. But uh, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I remember this story that I heard of an old, uh, a long time ago, happened in a Baptist church where a preacher was getting up to preach, and there was a mom and a young child sitting there, and the, the child was at that age, kind of like my son Lawson is at, where he's starting to ask that question, why or what, or he's just really inquisitive, right? And so as the preacher gets up to preach, the, he takes his Bible out and he lays it down on, on the pulpit. And the, the boy leans over to his mom and he says, Mom, what, what, what's he doing? Why does he do that? She says, well, son, that's his, that's, that's his Bible. That's the word of God. That's what he's going to teach us from. Oh, okay, okay. And he takes out his notes and he unfolds them and he lays them on the pulpit. And he says, Mom, why, what does that mean? She said, well, those are his notes. He studied all week and that's the message from the Bible that he's going to give to us. Oh, okay, okay. And the preacher reaches down and takes off his watch, and he lays it on the front of the pulpit. The little boy leans over to the mom, and he says, Mom, Mom, what does that mean? And she said, absolutely nothing, son. <laughs> so that being said, um, no, it is a pleasure to be here, like I said. Uh, Y'all, I just want to, from Carson and I both, first of all, you have welcomed us with open arms, and this place feels like home, and we are so excited that God has called us here um, for this period of ministry that we hope lasts a very, very long time. Um, it, it, it is great to be with you. The, the, the love of Christ and the love for his word, the commitment to his word is evident in the conversations that we've had. And so it is a blessing to us uh, to come and to join your staff as one of your pastors. Um, but this morning, as we turn to God's word, I've been thinking, what is it that I want to talk about? What, what is the first word that I want you to hear from me as one of your pastors? And so kind of 
jumping a lot of from what Pastor Paul talked about last week as he talked about awe and wonder. Um, we're we're going to be looking at something today because did you know that we live in a very diverse world? Can we all agree on that? We live in a very diverse world, right? We look around at different societies and different cultures, not only even here in, in Lexington and North Carolina or even in the United States, but all over the world, there's a great amount of diversity within God's creation, is there not? And within that diversity, there are a lot of different experiences and a lot of different things. And we might say that you would never find one thing that all people are unified in doing. There's not one singular activity that every person in all of creation, no matter how diverse, no matter where they're from, no matter what their, the, the color of their skin is, no matter what their culture is, no matter what their socioeconomic level is, their job, their education level, there can't be one thing that in all of that diversity, every person does. But I'm here to tell you this morning, there is one thing that we all do. And that is every person who has ever lived, who has ever been created in the image of God, does one thing, and that is that we worship. You see, the question is not, do we or do we not worship? The question is, what do we worship and how do we worship? Everyone is a worshiper. Right? My prayer is that for all of us who have put our faith in Christ and become children of God through the sacrifice of Jesus, that our worship is aimed solely and directly at God. But if we look throughout our culture, there are many people who worship. There are people who worship their children, right? There are people who worship their jobs and their careers. There are people who worship their bank accounts. There are people who worship the number of followers that they have on TikTok or Instagram or any social media platform. There are people who, who worship the car that they drive or the size of the house that they live in, right? There are all sorts of things that people worship. Now, we may not bow down to them. We may not sing songs to them. We may not raise our hands to them, but we worship them in our hearts, because we give them that throne of our heart that everything else revolves around that solely belongs to God. Everyone is a worshiper. So it's important this morning that we understand what worship is, especially as a Christian. We do a lot of things as a Christian, right? There are a lot of activities that are kind of from the Christian life and for the Christian life that the rest of the world doesn't experience. But here's why worship is so important. Sorry, I hate these microphones. I have weird-shaped ears. Um, here's why worship is so important. Because of all the experiences that we do as a church and as believers, worship is the only one of them that is eternal. Worship is the only one that is forever, right? Everything else we do, good things, but they're all going away one day. One day at the end of my life, whether Jesus comes back or my life on this earth ends... I will no longer practice exercising faith because as I come into the kingdom of my Lord, my faith will be made sight. Amen. I will no longer practice prayer because I will be in the presence of Jesus. My prayer will turn to praise, right? I will no longer need to intercede for people because God, will, Jesus has made all things new in his kingdom. Amen. Prayer will, will cease. Bible study. We will no longer gather around the written word of God because we will be in the presence of the eternal living word of God. But worship, as we see pictures of heaven, as we see pictures of eternity throughout scripture, we see worship time and time and time again. And so this morning, the, the title of my message this morning is simply a biblical prescription for authentic worship. 
a biblical prescription for authentic worship. And we're going to take our example from Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite with you to turn with me there to Isaiah chapter 6. I'll be reading from the ESV if you're following along on a phone or a tablet or something like that, uh, but any translation will serve you well. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is what the prophet Isaiah writes. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard a voice, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then he said, here am I, send me. This is a picture of worship that is happening in heaven. Let that sink in for a minute, right? We try our best. We try our best. We do not always do Perfectly, what we tried to do. This is a picture of perfect worship in the physical presence of God. God cares about how He is worshiped. God is very serious about how He is worshiped. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a theme that keeps coming up that God, when God's talking about the things that He's doing, He says, For my name's sake. For the sake of my name. God is serious about how he is worshipped and how he is proclaimed in the world. So much so that when two of the priests, Nadab and Abihu, would come and offered worship by offering incense to God, but they did it in an unauthorized way. The Bible says they offer strange fire in the temple. God immediately strikes them dead. God is serious about the way that he is worshipped. God is serious about the way his people approach him. This is why I loved what Pastor Paul said last week about casual worship. We do not approach the God of the universe, the God who spoke all things into existence out of nothing, the God who not only created all things but sustains all things by the power of his word. We do not approach that God casually. But... We approach him confidently because of what Christ has done. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. This morning, as this is a picture of the worship of heaven, I'm going to focus in on corporate worship. What we do together as the body of Christ when we gather each Sunday morning. Now, let's be clear. There is no such thing as corporate worship without individual worship. 
right? If we come together as a body and there is no heart within the individual for Christ and to worship him, then there is no corporate worship going on. There's a concert. Carson and I went to a concert Friday night in Raleigh. Saw one of our favorite musicians play, a guy named Ben Rector. And let me tell you, his, he, he's a Christian guy. He's a great guy. His music is, is very family-friendly and not, it's not explicitly Christian. But uh, you could tell there's a lot of kind of Christian undertones to it. But let me tell you something. Even in his music that was not explicit, there were people worshiping there. Particularly the two girls sitting next to me. Who were like dancing in the aisles. At one point, I had to, I've told Carson, I think I need to remind them this is a Ben Rector concert, not Woodstock. But uh, there were people there who, they were, they were letting go. They were uninhibited in the way that the, the music was affecting them, and that they were singing out what these songs were talking about, like they were the anthems of their life. And I, I was sitting there, or standing there, because everyone stood up, even though we bought seats, but I was standing there, and I was thinking, man, why does the church not look like this when we worship God? Why can we come and so fully give ourselves to celebrating culture and art and things that, that move us? But, but why, when it comes to worshiping God, do we just like to stand there and listen? And so this morning, as we look at this passage, I want us to see four prescriptions for authentic worship from Isaiah 6. Four kind of hallmarks that we should use to guide the way that we think about worship and the way that we address our hearts in worship. The first one is that authentic worship reveals the reality of God's glory. Authentic worship reveals the reality of God's glory. Here's what I mean by that. Number one, I chose that wording specifically, right? It reveals the reality of God's glory. When we are worshiping God, we are not giving God more glory. God is intrinsically glorious. God has glory. God by his very nature is glorious. So much so that when Moses would go up onto the mountain and would meet with him, he would glow. Because he was in the presence of the glory of God. God is glorious. And so when we worship him, we are not making God glorious. We are not giving God glory that he doesn't already have, but we are revealing the reality of the glory of God. Amen. Authentic worship reveals the reality of God's glory, and it does this in two ways. Number one, it brings us into the presence of God. It brings us into the presence of God. This is what we talked about, what the author of Hebrews writes. Because we have a great high priest, because Christ is the one who has mediated between a holy God and sinful man, because he is the one who has atoned and paid for our sins, we can now enter into the presence of God. We can approach the throne of God with confidence and draw near to him. Moses is a cool guy in the Bible. He does a lot of really cool stuff. But when God asks him, Moses, what do you want more than anything? His response is, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't because you will die. <laughs> that, that is the God that we now get to enter into the presence of and worship. 
The God who had to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock and put his hand over it and only let him see his backside as he passed by because his glory was too much and Moses would have just exploded. It brings us into the presence of God. Isaiah makes that clear. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And then he goes on to, to explain what he sees when he sees God. He doesn't see, right, the, the picture that we often like to paint with kids of God, the, the mild-mannered, loving grandpa who just sits in his rocking chair to put you on his knee and tell you stories, right? He says, no, I saw the Lord. And how did he see him? He saw him, he was high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, He's a king, the high king over all things for all eternity and forever. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. The train of his robe was so much so that it filled the entirety of the temple. He says, I came into the presence of the glory of God. Authentic worship reveals God's glory. The seraphim, there, in, chapter, in verse 2, worshiping God. Six wings, right? It's kind of crazy. Six wings. Two, they cover their face, and two, they cover their feet. Why? Because they are in the presence of the glory of God. It is too much for them to bear, right? It's the same sentiment that God gives throughout the Old Testament where in the presence of, of the pre-incarnate Christ, he says, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. He says, you are in my presence. This place is sanctified by my presence and my glory, it's not a special incantation. It's not something weird that God does in a moment, but it is everywhere that God goes, he glorifies and he sanctifies by his very being there. Church, how amazing is it that we get to walk into the presence of God to worship him? Thank you, Lord. You see, that's another thing that everyone shares. Not only does everyone share the characteristic of being a worshiper, but everyone also shares the reality that one day everyone will stand in the presence of God. Thank you, Lord. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we will stand in the presence of God in his love and in his mercy and his grace, and we will behold his glory with awe and wonder at what he has done for us. But everyone will stand in the presence of God, either as their judge or as their redeemer. Authentic worship reveals the glory of God by bringing us into the presence of God. But two, authentic worship reveals the glory of God by being explicitly focused on God. Notice the song that the angels are singing, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Everything that they're saying, every aspect of their worship, everything they're doing is pointing to one thing and one thing alone, and that is the reality of the glory of God. See, when we come to worship sometimes, we often like to focus on the things that God has done for us and how we feel about God. But the objective truth of scripture is that worship is about one thing and it is about pointing to and looking at and celebrating God and his glory. Amen. Friends, this is a hard truth sometimes for us to get, especially in our American society. Worship is not about 
us. Worship is not about the worshiper. It is all about the one being worshipped. That's why it, 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 it grates at me sometimes when I'm talking to people and they say, well, I just didn't really get anything out of worship this morning. Well, good, you're not supposed to. <laughs> Worship's not about you. I had a friend who was pastoring a church one time and they got kind of caught up in what has become known within church culture as the worship wars, right? Do we sing old traditional hymns or do we sing more modern music with a band? We're not debating that today. Frankly, we're not debating that ever. Because as long as it's biblical and it points to God, we're good. But in this particular church, it was a big contentious issue. And there's an older gentleman there. His name was Rodney. I don't know if that's his name or not. That's just what I always call him. His name was Rodney. And Rodney was, he was a stalwart of the traditionalism. And so they found themselves, Baptist church, so they found themselves in another business meeting. Right, potlucks and business meetings, that's what we do. Found themselves in another business meeting, arguing about the style of worship. And Rodney stands up to say something. And now everybody who's on the kind of team traditional over here is like, hey, hey. like our cleanup batter's up. Like he's going he's gonna to end this debate for us. Here's what Rodney said. He said, I did not like these new songs when we started doing them. I didn't think they belonged in church. They were not my preference and I didn't like them. He said, but then God made me realize something. No one is singing these songs to me. See, guys, we have, to, we have to be focused on God in our worship. The songs that we sing have to point to the reality of who God is and, and what he has done. There can't be any room for interpretation in the songs that we sing. It has to be completely God-centered and God-focused. Because only God is worthy of worship. Right? There's kind of two classifications uh, that I, I maybe to my dis demise put music into sometimes that's not very good music. And one of those we call Jesus is my boyfriend music. And that's because there are a lot of songs that are written as, as Christian songs or as worship songs that I can listen to and I truthfully can ask the question and not have an answer to say, is this written about Jesus Christ who came and died for me and bore my sin on the cross, the eternal God who stepped down and put on frail humanity, humbling himself to death, even to death on a cross. Is this song about him or about an ex-girlfriend or a romantic love interest of some sort? Church, we have to be explicitly God-focused in our worship. Why? Because heaven is explicitly God-focused in its worship. Amen. And we gather together week after week to rehearse together what we will do together for all eternity at the end of our lives when we step into the kingdom of God and into the presence of Christ and we gather around the throne and we worship him. Everything of this world will pass away. God will remain. Amen. Authentic worship reveals the reality of God's glory by taking us into his presence and by focusing us completely on the reality of who he is and what he has accomplished. 
Secondly, number two, not only does authentic worship reveal the reality of God's glory, but authentic worship reveals the reality of our own sinfulness and prompts us to confess. Right? This is... what Isaiah says, right? Isaiah goes in and he sees this picture in heaven. He sees what's going on. He sees the seraphim flying around and worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. He sees this. And Isaiah's first reaction is not just to, to throw his hands up and to start singing. Isaiah's first reaction is not to whip out his phone and start taking a video. Isaiah's first reaction is not thinking of how he's going to caption this Instagram picture, of this beautiful picture of the church worshiping. But Isaiah's first reaction is he says, I am undone. Woe is me. Isaiah is pronouncing a curse upon himself. Isaiah is essentially in our modern tongue coming in and he's looking at the glory of God. He's looking at this picture of the worship of heaven and he's saying, I have no hope. I have no chance. I'm a sinful man. I dwell amongst sinful men. I am broken. I am depraved. I am all of these things that we use to talk about our sinfulness. I am far from God. I have no hope. And the reality sets in that one day I'm going to stand before this glorious God and he's going to stand over me in judgment. The high king on the throne as my judge. Woe is me. You see, I love the way that an old theologian named John Calvin wrote a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And I love the way that he opens his book. He says, to understand any matter of theology, we must first understand two things, God and ourselves. And we cannot understand the latter without fully comprehending the former. What Calvin is saying is that we cannot know ourselves without rightly knowing God. And when we see the glory of God unveiled in all of his glory, sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, reigning over all things, it is like a mirror that shines back the blackness of our soul to us. I, I have this problem. Had it as a kid, still have it today. I spill things on myself when I eat, like a lot. My mom growing up told me that I could have been the poster boy for spray and wash. Every time we walk in from a restaurant, Carson just says, go get the degreaser, put it on your shirt. But there's this one time in particular where we were at a uh, baseball game and I was wearing a brand new white like t-shirt, this very white shirt. And I was eating chicken strips And as all of you know, you can't eat chicken strips without barbecue sauce. And let me tell you, I was doing good on this particular evening, and I was coming down to the very end, and I was still clean. And as I went to take one of my last bites, the tiniest drip, something that normally wouldn't bother me at all, the tiniest drip of barbecue sauce, right on that white shirt. The size of a pin. It wasn't a big deal. But against the contrast of that pure white shirt, you could see that tiny speck of barbecue sauce from a mile away. 
That is how we see our sin against the contrast of God's glory. God is so pure. God is so holy. God is so perfect and righteous that even the smallest, most what we in the world would deem insignificant speck of sin looks huge. When we see God, we understand our own sinfulness. That's what Isaiah says, right? He goes through that. Woe, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But he doesn't come to that conclusion solely based on his own mind, his own thinking, but he tells us why at the end of verse 5. He says, for my eyes have seen <coughs> sorry, the king. Why do I know that I'm sinful? Why do I know that I'm broken? Because my eyes have seen the king. And so church, as we gather to worship, as we focus on the reality of God's glory, as we enter into his presence, it should remind us of just how sinful and broken we are. For we have seen the king and we know that we could never measure up. But luckily, this is not where Isaiah 6 stops. Not only does authentic worship reveal God's glory, and not only does authentic worship reveal the reality of our own sinfulness and prompt us to confess our need for God, but number three, authentic worship provides gospel assurance, right? Look at what happens. He says, woe is me for I am undone. I'm helpless. I have no hope. My eyes have seen the king. I know how sinful and broken I am. And in his hopelessness and in his helplessness, one of the seraphim gets an ember from the altar and it brings and he touches his lips and he says, you have been touched by this. Your lips are now clean and your sin is atoned for. Church, there's one thing that fuels our worship and it is the fact that we are not cleansed by an ember from the altar. We are cleansed by the blood of the lamb. Think about the gospel for a second. The eternal word of God. The one who, by whom all things are created. The one to whom and for whom all things have been created. And the one who even now holds all things together in the palm of his hand, making sure that everything just keeps working. The word of God going out into the void of nothing and creating everything as it goes. That is Jesus. Amen. That is Jesus. The king. The one who sits on the throne. But here's the gospel. That king would get off of his throne. Owing us Nothing. And would step out of his kingliness, would put on humanity, would humble himself to be a servant, and would come and would die so that we no longer have to say, woe is me, for I have no hope. Because now I have hope, and my hope is in the finished and the accomplished work of my king. 
See, Jesus hung on the cross, and as he hung on the cross, he said something. In, in Aramaic, or excuse me, in Greek, the word is tetelestai. We translate it in English as, it is finished. But let me tell you something about that word. That, work in the Greek, that word in the Greek language is, is a very special word because of the way that it functions in the vocabulary. We won't get into all that, but if you want to, come and talk to me. I love talking about it. But what that does is that the way that that word is used, the voice that that word is used in means that it is something that happened at a finite period of time, but that has a never-ending effect. You see, Jesus hung on the cross in our place, stood condemned in our place, screamed the scream of condemnation that we should have borne, hanging on the cross and says, it is finished. Why? So that we no longer have to say, woe is me, and we can say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. We worship because of the gospel. The gospel has made us worshipers. The gospel has changed our affections and our views and has focused us on where our true worship should go in Jesus. And so when we worship, we worship with the gospel. We worship in the gospel. We sing of what God has done through Christ on our behalf. We make much in song and in prayer and in our heart about the accomplished work of Christ that he has given for us on the cross, that he would give himself, he would go into the grave, he would have victory over death, and that he would come back again to bring us to himself as his children, that we may never stand condemned, but that we may stand in front of God, adopted into his family for all eternity. Authentic worship is gospel-centered worship, and it provides us hope and assurance. Authentic worship provides gospel assurance. And that's where we like to stop. We say, I get it. I see God. God is beautiful. God is glorious. I'm in his presence. I understand how, how helpless and hopeless I am and how sinful I am, but I'm reminded of the work of Christ and what he's done for me so that I can have hope again. Let's go have lunch. But that's not where the story ends. You see, we cut off Isaiah right there. We cut off Isaiah in verse 7 because in our English Bibles, there's a new heading. But that is one account of what's going on. This is one continued conversation. And so after, after seeing God's glory and realizing his own sinfulness and being reminded of the hope that he has in the gospel and that God is the one who is atoning for him and making a way for him to be clean out of his sin again, there's another question that he hears from God in verse 8. And it is this. It says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And that's the last thing I want us to see this morning. Authentic worship reveals the reality of God's glory. Authentic worship reveals the reality of our own sinfulness and prompts us to confession. Authentic worship provides gospel assurance, but authentic worship propels us to action. Church, we do not get to come and gather and sing good songs and revel in the gospel and be filled with the joy of the Lord every week and then sit on our hands until we come back the next week. One of my favorite statements 
well, one of my favorite books, really, about missions and evangelism, the book by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in that book, he says this. He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. Think about that for a second. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Because there are people in our own country, in our own neighborhoods, because there are people around the world who are not worshipers of God, who don't understand the reality of who God is and what Christ has done for them, that is why missions exist. Because there are people who do not worship God in his glory and in his goodness, we go and we tell them. There is no greater emphasis, there's no greater uh, impetus for missions than the worship of God. I don't know how we so often, myself included, can come and can spend time reminding myself of the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for me and then just be like, all right, see you next week, God. What sense does that make? There are people dying Without hope, there are people who, was one, who will one day see the glory of God face to face and who, like Isaiah, will say, woe is me, I am undone, I have no hope. Because how will they know if no one tells them? Missions exist because worship doesn't. This is what all creation is for. This is what all creation is about. As God establishes his creation, as he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he says that their, their goal, their job is to expand the borders of the garden all over creation so that worship would expand all over creation and that everyone together would proclaim the excellencies of the one who created them. But we know Genesis 3 comes before all of that happens gets in the way, sin enters the picture. And so now God uses his church to expand his kingdom. Not so that we can have bigger buildings, not so that we can have bigger budgets or bigger programs, but so that people will worship God in truth and in their hearts. You see, the goal of all of this is that God would receive glory, the glory that he is due, by people coming to know him. There is no greater act of worship towards the Father recorded in Scripture than the sacrifice and the submission of the Son. So when we are called by God to go to take the gospel to those who are perishing without hope, the obedience to do so is worship. Every moment of our life should be worship. We, we compartmentalize it and we, and, we, and we make it just what we do when we sing or when we pray together on a Sunday. But worship at its very root is our response and our obedience to God. And so as we go from this place this morning, let us go with hearts that are focused on God, but also let us go with hearts that burn with a passion for taking the name of Christ and what he has done to a world that desperately needs it. 
because God does not need more worshipers, but he deserves them. The famous document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, opens with this question. What is the chief end of man? What is the main purpose of man? The answer that it gives is to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever. Church, let us go and be a church of individuals who every moment of every day, as we live our lives, in our workplace, in the coffee shop, in our neighborhoods, and here in this building, glorify God and let us have a passion for leading others to enjoy his presence forever.